Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 199. My name is Terry Frost and this time around we look at two very, very different films. The first one is a middle of 1960s German crimi film, uh, also filmed in English, and it is The Trigon Factor starring Stuart Granger and Susan Hampshire. And from there we go up to 1991 for, and this is totally a coincidence, a movie about what it is to be Jewish. And it is 1991's Homicide, a David Mamet film starring Joe Mantegna, William H. Macy and Rebecca Pigeon. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way and the show will start. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of classic movie appreciation. It appears every two weeks and the only rule is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old. Probably not going to do genre films because genre films go over to the Martian Drive-In podcast, but nonetheless, that's the rule. More than 20 years old. You can contact and offer feedback several ways. The first one is the new feedback email address, feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook and leave feedback there and get updates, or you can go to paleo-cinema.blogspot.com and listen to the episodes there and put feedback through. This podcast may contain adult materials, so please don't listen to it when children are around or when you have your granny over. Hey, how's everybody doing? Um, I had a pretty interesting in what is known as the Oriental Sense Week. Uh, I had some family ructions. Those of you who have friended me up on Facebook will understand what kind of family ructions. My estranged brother made contact with the family and has caused some upset um, among my sister and my mother and myself. And, um, yeah, so it was a very rocky week for me in some ways. And um, the contact with him and the means of his contact and the tone of his contact triggered my PTSD. So I had quite a shaky week. Um, When you have an anxiety disorder like that, sometimes it can creep up on you. It doesn't make itself announce the way, say, a fever does or some kind of physical pain. But it can um, be pretty profound. But thanks to the help, support and love of friends and family and things like that, we all got through it. And our kind of management plan for that particular problem has gone through. And on the upside... At the end of the week, I saw Doctor Strange. Now, there's been a lot of mixed media um, appreciation of Doctor Strange. I saw it on Friday night. It's now Sunday. I saw it on Friday night in 3D in a cinema that was about half full. But um, I enjoyed it. I really did. I think it's an interesting um, addition to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think it really works in a lot of ways. I think Cumberbatch is fine as Stephen Strange. Uh, Chewy Toledja 4 is in it. Mads Mikkelsen playing the usual Mads Mikkelsen villain role. There's not a lot of nuance there. Um, Benedict Wong is very good playing a character, oddly enough, called Wong. Uh, Tilda Swinton's in there in the white-faced version of The Ancient One. And yeah, that, that, that is, of course, that is the problematic part of Doctor Strange, that kind of whitewashing of the, a particular character. I don't think it's a mistake that Marvel will make again. Uh, I know there were some political aspects to it. There was some political stuff with the Chinese government, which may have um, messed them around just a little bit. But one way or the other, yeah, it was a mistake to kind of whiteface that role. Having said that, Tilda Swinton's good in the role. She she does bring her A-game to it and that kind of strange otherworldliness that she has as a persona really does work. 
and yeah, so there's her ancient one is amusing and scary and um, dangerous all at the same time. And uh, the battle scenes that she appears in kind of work. Uh, in fact, all of the battle scenes in the movie really work. Um, magic battles haven't quite been done this way before. People have said that a lot of the effects in the cities reminds them of Inception, and, and that's a fair, con- you know, fair way of putting it. But nonetheless, it's done. It's like Inception ramped up with a nitrous tank in the engine. It really does kind of work. Um, the arc of the character, which is not entirely dissimilar, of course, to Tony Stark's arc in the original 2008 Iron Man, it has that similarity. But one thing I didn't expect that what did turn up is that Stephen Strange is played as a man with a weird sense of humour, which is kind of cool. He's, um, he's into music trivia big time. Um, while he's performing brain surgery on somebody, um, one of his assistants uh, tries to trick him by playing music in the background and getting him to identify the music. In this case, it's Chuck Mangione's Feel So Good. But yeah, there's that kind of um, playfulness about it as well. There's some good humour mixed in with the serious stuff. And there are some quite tragic bits in it when um, Strange has his come up and, and the desperation of the character. We know he's going to be okay. We know he's going to end up being Sorcerer Supreme and all that. But there are some moments of kind of tragedy in there that, that do work in the context and to a greater extent than Tony Stark had ever experienced as well. So that kind of smug, rich, um, talented character having their comeuppance is played in a lot deeper way than it was in Iron Man. But uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I'm going to see it again 2D. The 3D really works, particularly when Strange confronts the big bad in his own realm. There's some really good bits of that and a a real sense of the oddness and total alienness of this other realm really does work. I really want to see it 2D as well. The 3D work, particularly when Strange was approaching the Big Bad, and I'm not doing any spoils giving away who the Big Bad is. And, um, yeah, it really does work. And um, Benedict Wong, as Wong, is a good... He's not a sidekick, but he is a good ally to Strange. And one of the interesting things that the movie does with it is Strange's New York Sanctum is only one of three. There's one in London, and there's also one in Hong Kong. And Wong is in charge of the Hong Kong one. So basically they are allies more than a master-servant thing as it was originally in the comics. And that really works as well. Uh, There are two extra bits after the credits. Both of them are important. One's a lot lighter than the other. And the second one sets up um, a second Doctor Strange movie in a very, very interesting way. Um, So yeah, I, I did enjoy it a lot. So, what else have I been watching? Uh, a couple of things. I did watch Beat the Devil, the 1953 John Huston film starring Humphrey Bogart, Peter Laurie, Jennifer Jones, and Gina Lollabridgida. Um, really interesting film in some ways. It was written, co-written by Truman Capote as well as Houston. And um, I was actually going to do it for the podcast, but then The Trigon Factor and Homicide came up, and I thought, I'm going to do those two. But, um, yeah, it's in the public domain, too, so if you can find a copy of it, I believe there is one on YouTube. There's also one at archive.org. You can download guilt-free Beat the Devil, 
and um, yeah, it, it's kind of fun. Uh, the script was kind of written day by day almost, based loosely on a novel. But um, it does show that there's that lack of um, cohesiveness, which makes it a little bit of a difficult watch at times. There are some quite funny lines in it. Uh, Peter Laurie gets some funny lines. Bogo gets some funny lines. It's just um, it's Hollywood movie makers being playful in Italy, basically. And, um, yeah, if you want to check that out, it's worth having a look at. The other one is I just kind of sat back. I had to have a vegetable movie where I could just sit back and be a vegetable and not do analysis too deeply. And so I watched Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Um, it's fun. This is the one with Death, played by William Sadler. Um, pastiching the Seventh Seal by Ingmar Bergman in an amusing way, though most of the people who ever saw Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey didn't see the seventh seal and may have thought that it was a reference to the ian mckellen's role in last action hero the schwarzenegger movie which again is another pastiche of um the seventh seal but yeah it's fun it's mindless it's um amusing it's got pam greer in it which is never a bad thing and so i just kind of vegged out and uh watched that been doing a lot of xbox what can i tell you it's an addiction and uh, the first step in curing an addiction is admitting that you have it so um, I'm going to take a break. When I get back, we're going to talk about The Trigon Factor, a German crimi film which also had an English-language edition, directed by Cyril Frankel, who did a lot of episodic English quirky TV in the 1960s and 1970s, and uh, later on went on to be a creative consultant for some of those 1970s ITV shows like Department S and Jason King. So sit back, and I'm going to... Um, play you some music now. Ain't doing bad, doing nothing, just lying around all day. I do the more things come my way when I get up in the morning thinking of the day ahead makes me so downright weary I go right back to my bed why should I ever worry it's such a Doing nothing Somehow it seems to pay Ain't doing bad Doing nothing Just lying around all day It's such a losing game 
and I can prove I get there just the same. Folks look at me and say, be something. How much more would it pay? Ain't doing bad, doing nothing. Just lying round all day. I get the blues when there's work to be done. Just wanna sit in the noonday sun. I'm lazy. Ain't doing bad, doing nothing. That was Peggy Lee with Ain't Doing Bad, Doing Nothing. Very obscure Peggy Lee song. I've actually found a few obscure ones. And there's a little bit of, of course, of the Billie Holiday influence in that one and in some of the others. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite a nice little album that I found with a whole bunch of uh, rarities in it. But on to crimmy films. Now, The Trigon Factor, I actually saw this in the cinema when I was a kid. Uh, I've spoken before about My Babysitter on Saturdays which was the Regal Cinema in Liverpool, New South Wales, where there'd be a double feature on at lunchtime, ostensibly for kids. But they'd put on pretty much any low-rating B or C picture from Columbia Pictures or all of those second-string studios, except when they do Elvis movies, which were MGM. And uh, they'd put them on and not really give us stuff what they were showing. And so I got to see a whole bunch of eclectic films, including this one. Now, this one is a German-English co-production. I'll see if I can find a decent uh, plot pricey because the plots are quite elaborate in these kind of movies, so getting a synopsis can be a non-trivial task. Uh, the plot, according to Wikipedia, is a Scotland Yard inspector, Cooper Smith, played by Stuart Granger, is called to investigate a series of unsolved robberies. He arrives at a country manor of a respectable English family. He discovers Livia Emberday, Kathleen Nesbitt, the mistress of the house, has turned to crime in order to bolster the family's flagging fortunes. With the assistance of an order of bogus nuns, stolen goods end up in the warehouse of Hamlin, played by Robert Morley, purportedly a respectable, a respectable businessman. That's kind of a very rough one and, and quite crude and doesn't give you the full strangeness of this thing. Uh, the cast is, is um, interesting. Stuart Granger, um, he, of course, had been a star in Hollywood in the 40s and 50s, did Scaramouche, which is one of my favourite swashbuckling movies for MGM in the mid-1950s with um, Janet Lee and Mel Ferrer in it as well. Uh, Susan Hampshire plays Trudy Emberday, the daughter of Livia, played by Kathleen Nesbitt. Robert Morley's in there playing Hubert Hamlin, playing the usual kind of Robert Morley role. Uh, there are a couple of German actors that were brought in for the film as well. Uh, one of the, the head of the Order of Nuns, who manufacture the Trigon um, pottery, which is where they get the Trigon factor for They've got a distinctive maker's mark on them. Is a German actress called, and you don't laugh, Bridget Horney. Uh, and she's quite good in it as well. The other person that they get into um, from the German side of things in the English language version of the Trigon Factor is Eddie Arendt playing Emil Closen, the man who invents a gun that will break into a safe. And it's quite an impressive gun. Um, Eddie Arendt appeared in any number of crimi movies. He was kind of 
a go-to guy for this kind of film, like kind of Elijah Cook Jr. for these things. Um, he is a actor, cabaret artist, and comedian. He appeared in 104 films between 1956 and 2002. He was born in Gdansk and died in Munich at the age of 88 in 2013. Uh, most of the things he did were um, crimi films. He was in uh, the, any number of The Green Archer, Dead Eyes of London, Puzzle of the Red Orchid, Door of the Seven Locks, In on the River, The Black Abbot, uh, A Secret of the Black Widow, the Hexer, Circus of Fear, which is another English movie, and The Trigon Factor. The scene with Emil Close and the Eddie Aaron character breaking into a large vault with kind of a high-tech Gatling gun that shoots rockets is quite impressive because they put him in a special suit of bright yellow metal armour, which makes him look like a cross between a robot and Iron Man. And uh, it's got a visor on it and a big dome-like head on it. And he basically shoots around the vault, uh, the set of locking mechanism of the vault, and uses the rockets to basically puncture, you know, punch holes in the vault. And it's all done very, very well. It's a very 1960s space-agey kind of approach. It's the sort of thing you might see in... I don't know, a Matt Helm movie or something like that, but with that European twist and slightly higher production values. And it's one of the bits that makes this movie quite memorable. The um, scenes where um, the robbery is taking place of a large amount of gold, which is going to be smuggled out of England through putting small amounts of gold into the pottery that the nuns make. It's a very complicated plot. Now, Cooper Smith, played by Stuart Grange, is there. He's um, from a wealthy family. He's posh. He's got slicked back hair, grey at the sides, and chats up um, women who work at, including um, a young lady called Sophie, played by an interesting English character called um, Sophie Hardy, oddly enough. Uh, who gets a nude scene in the film it was a little surprising to see a nude scene I've watched the extended version which is a kind of mashup and it's not done officially but it's an unofficial mashup of various sources the German um, print some American and English prints that they were able to find uh, the movie's been butchered for various markets in various ways and there's a glimpse of um, topless nudity in this movie as the character gets into a bathtub and that surprised me a little bit, but then I remembered that Europe was a lot less freaky about female nudity and, in fact, actively encouraged it in these kind of light-hearted movies at the time. So uh, that surprised me. There's also um, a murderer involved, a masked and hooded murderer who goes around murdering attractive women. Uh, the mask is one of those kind of transparent masks that um, people wear with moustaches and, and um, enhanced eyes on it so you can't see who's behind the mask. And this is just a side issue to all of the other stuff, the criminal enterprises of the nuns and Olivia Emberday and her family. She also has a son, Luke, played by um, an interesting actor called James Culliford. Now, Luke's um, slightly touched in the head, to use an old-fashioned term, and goes around dressing up in costumes and um, tries to touch women's arms and, and kind of freaky shit like that. James Culliford was a, um, an English jobbing actor who uh, had a car accident and ended up with scars on the side of his face. It didn't stop him from acting. You know, he, he continued until he had a stroke in the early 1970s. 
and um, and kind of almost and pretty much stopped working after that. But uh, he, you know, he didn't always have a fortunate, un, a fortunate life. But he did have a long-term partner, an English actor called Alfred Drake, a Cockney actor, who went on to have a long career until his death in 2003. And he and James Culliford were devoted to each other for about 30-odd years until um, Culliford died in 2002 and um, Alfred Lynch died in 2003 so you know nice kind of side issue to this i keep mentioning in podcasts people with facial disfigurements i'm not sure what that means at all but um yeah it's something that happens i suppose now the boss of uh superintendent coopersmith is played by two different actors depending on which version of this film that you see in the german version he's played by a guy called siegfried schoenberg schoenberg uh, who's a well-known kind of German character actor who'd done a number of crimey films as well. But the English version has James Robertson Justice playing Sir John. And um, he uh, does his usual pompous, bearded, prat kind of role. By the way, the movie's on YouTube, so you can watch it on YouTube. I'm not going to leave you hanging by mentioning a movie that I found an obscure copy of, but you won't be able to watch. But um, this movie is available which um is kind of nice because i'd hate to mention it and then have nobody be able to find it and you all message me up on facebook saying where can i get this so it is available uh now the history of career films as well is kind of interesting i've done a little bit of homework that i'm now going to inflict on you uh, crimi films came out of the 1960s, well, late 1950s, really. In 1959, a Danish film company called Rialto Films, uh, who basically got the rights to Edgar Wallace's crime novels, which were English crime novels from the 1920s to the 1950s. And they were very, very popular, particularly in Germany. And so Rialto Films made 32 movies, all of which were based on Edgar Wallace novels. Um, the name Crimi Film comes um, an abbreviation for the German term criminal film or criminal roman. So it was contracted to Crimis. Uh, 32 of them, they um, were all... Uh, under the, I'm reading this from a Wikipedia page, from, under the artistic supervision of Horst Wintland and directed by Albert Vora and Harold Reinl. Um, so from the, they kind of died off at the end of the 1960s. There's a whole bunch of stylistic um, things that crimi films kind of have to have in the same way that Italian giallo films had to have certain tropes in them. The crimi films, because they were mostly made by um, Rialto, tended to have a lot of the same actors in them. Uh, Klaus Kinski turned up a fair bit. Uh, Fritz Rasp, Pinkus Brown, Harry Werhagen, Eddie Arendt in particular. Uh, they, uh, Gert Frober, who later played Goldfinger, all turned up in crimi films repeatedly playing more or less the same characters. Uh, they're very much a German spin on English country life. Location of stories mostly in London and the home counties. They've got um, nightclubs and stately homes and Scotland Yards involved and all of those kind of things. They're mostly whodunits. Um, and there are some robberies. The interesting thing about this one, the Trigon Factory, is that the robbery is kind of very impressive and very cool. And it's also got that level of perversity because you've got the um, son of the family who um, is, you know, 
mentally disabled, let's say, uh, Luke, and who dresses up in exo- you know, exotic costumes. He's wearing enormous turbans and robes at one stage and uh, really colourful, weird clothing. Um, you've got his um, sister, Trudy, played by Susan Hampshire, who's uh, a photographer who takes um, advertising f- photographs of scantily clad women, which is always a nice thing to see in a movie, um, and um, may have secrets of her own. You've got the mother who's basically running a criminal enterprise. She's the Moriarty of the bit. You've got... Um, Bridget Horney playing the head nun. You've got a couple of nuns played by Carolyn Blankiston and Richard Dean and Jackson, a black nun and a white nun who um, commit murder on behalf of the criminal enterprise. And then you've got the fence who is played by Robert Morley. So it's it's kind of twisted and turns and perverted. In the middle of it, you've got Stuart Granger as Cooper Smith um, wandering through and trying to solve the crime along with um, the are the resources of Scotland Yard. Stuart Granger was a problematic actor too, by the way. He wasn't well-liked. His career kind of diminished in Hollywood uh, because a kind of suave, sophisticated um, gentleman that he played in movies were going out of style. And also the fact that he was a bit of a shit. He was pompous and opinionated. He really um, had a sense of entitlement about him and his career diminished because of that he was very opinionated about things like gay people and and other stuff so not necessarily a very nice person Uh, but he was part of that hollywood system and didn't really adapt to the collapse of the studio system as indeed happened to a number of other actors but in this one he's likable and funny and um charming a little too old for the women he's trying to chat up of course but he seems to be the only person in England with a suntan, which is kind of interesting as well. And, uh, yeah, he, he's, um, you know, because it's a light, farcical kind of comedy, even though there are some um, grim and gruesome bits, the villain, the um, serial killer who goes around murdering the young girls, for instance, ends up dying by having a large ladle full of molten gold poured over their stomach in an accident and basically burns and dies because their guts get burnt out by molten gold uh, which is not a, a pretty way to go if you're going to choose your own death then you probably won't choose having a large bucket full of molten gold poured onto your stomach uh, I think it may be the only case in a movie where that actually occurs too but um, just to kind of to finish up about the Trigon Factor. It's a probably a good gateway drug to creamy films because a lot of the German ones are um, a little inaccessible until you get your head around the genre in the same way the Giallo films are sometimes a bit bemusing until you watch a few of them and you start to see the common tropes and kind of go with the flow of them. In fact, any of these kind of specialist genres, Eurocrime, Eurospy, any of those ones, do require that kind of a certain number of the films are watched. It's kind of like an acquired taste. Uh, you know, you, you munch a few of them and eventually you go, okay, yeah, I like these. And it's very much the case with crimi films. This one, of course, because it wasn't made by Rialto and wasn't made in Germany, is a bit of an outlier, which is probably the reason why it's a good gateway drug for 
that particular genre. And, uh, of course, uh, it follows on a whole bunch of other things in um, German cinema. The Mabusa movies, which had a resurgence in the 1960s from the 1920s when um, Fritz Lang originally brought them out. Uh, so there's, there's a kind of criminal undercurrent to these movies that is... Yeah, it's supposed to be in England, but you know that a lot of it's not filmed in England. A lot of the actors aren't English. But it's, um, yeah, they're, they're kind of, there was this addiction to Edgar Wallace's crime novels, to the whodunits. They weren't as big on Agatha Christie, but Edgar Wallace for some reason. And he did a TV series of, uh, there were filmed stories of Edgar Wallace's that came out in the early 1960s that were quite popular. They turned up in Australian TV as well. But um, just to kind of finalise it, a weird little film with quirky characters in it, mysteries and um, police procedural stuff, a really nice caper, and some beautiful set design, colour photography, and beautiful women in it. I mean, there's nothing there not to like. Yeah, if I'd been there, man, I'd left this junk behind too. Well, here's how they did it. And what was that when it was alive? I'd say it was a three-inch mortar shell, superintendent, standard military type, probably fired from a bazooka. Could have been aimed from the back of the car. Where the hell would they get a thing like that? Army surplus, plenty of it lying around Europe. They probably picked up some obsolete model. The ammunition would be difficult to come by. For these people, nothing seems to be very difficult. Ah, Sir John. I thought this might drag you out of your lair. They get cheekier and cheekier. Yes, sir. Uh, methods are crude but very effective. No messing around. A mortar shell slams through the bloody door and wham! 50,000 pounds for the cop on the beak can even find his whistle. Be nice to know who they were, wouldn't it, sir? I thought you said that Thompson was onto something. Well, he thinks he is. He's got a lead to a place called Emberday. He's down there now. What's he reported? Well, he hasn't. That's the answer thing. He usually lives by the book. I think I'll take a run down to Emberday Hall myself. What sort of place is it? Oh, exactly what it sounds like. One of the stately homes of England. Except that about a year ago, they let part of it some odd order of nuns. Sounds rather bizarre, Sam, doesn't it? Very. Your taste for the bizarre hasn't always led to results, has it? No. But one day I'm going to write it. Ah, Mr. Detective Scott. You see that you've written your own time? Oh, of course, sir. Make sure that you report back from that place. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. In triplicate, sir. So I'm going to take another break. Now, when I get back, we're going to get a little more serious with David Mamet's 1991 crime character drama, Homicide, starring Joe Mantegna and William H. Macy. Robert Gold is a detective. I need you to go out there, find this man, and bring him in alive. We tail him, we nail him, we That's turn him over, right. we shake him. Let's go get him. How come you always got to be the first one through the door? Our job is to bring him down alive. With a garbage man. You think I don't know that? Robert Gold is a Jew. I'm sorry, Bobby. I got a call downtown. The Jewish guys, they got this clout. You were there. You're his people. You're on the case. I'm his people? You hate yourself that much. You belong nowhere. He's about to be presented with some difficult choices. Would you like to know how to, to solve the problem of evil? No, man. Because if I did, then I'd be out of a job. FBI, I want to know about the old woman. Get up against the fence. Why are you here? I found a list. A list of Jewish names, men here in this city. I need the list. The list is evidence. You got some heavy troubles in your mind? It's just, they think it's some... Some sort of conspiracy. The greatest strategist of all time. 
It was another name they had for Hitler. I don't get it. It's not your thing, it's my thing, okay? In the next 72 hours, he will betray his friends. Disgrace the force. How would you like to be suspended? You talk to my partner that way? Do you know what this man has done in the line? Stand down! And commit an act of violence. I want to help you in your work. What I do, Mr. Gold, you don't want to know. Because he believes it is the only right thing to do. Joe Mantegna in David Mamet's Homicide. That's a very 1990s um, trailer for the film. But it pretty much covers it. Uh, well, for a change, Wikipedia has a really good praise for this movie, the plot of the movie. Um, it's a movie I came to late. I've only just seen it. Now, I'm a big Mammoth fan, but for some reason, Homicide wasn't one of the ones I've been watching. And so I thought, I've got to watch this. And then when I watched it, I said, I've got to do this for the podcast. It's kind of like that. Uh, I've done a previous Mammoth film on the podcast being House of Games, and uh, this one's punchier too. It's got a lot to say about identity. It's actually about a man finding out who he is as much as it is about the two crime investigations that occurred during the movie. But uh, here's the proceed from IMDb. Uh, Bobby Gold, Joe Mantegna, is an inner-city homicide detective on the trail of Robert Randolph, played by Ving Rhames a drug dealer and cop killer on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list. En route to nabbing an accomplice of Randolph's, Gold and his partner Tim Sullivan, William H. Macy, happen upon a murder scene. The elderly Jewish owner of a candy store in a black ghetto has been gunned down reportedly for the fortune hidden in her basement. The deceased woman's son, a doctor, uses his clout to have Gold assigned to the case in the belief that Gold, himself Jewish, might be empathetic to his plight. Gold, however, seems to disregard his ethnicity, and beyond that, he's irritated about being pulled off a much higher-profile case. Ultimately, though, this is the offset by interactions with members of the Jewish community that play on Gold's feelings of inadequacy and his inability to fit in. A nighttime survey of a crime scene uncovers an important piece of the woman's past, and Gold reluctant. Gold's reluctance turns to curiosity, leading to the discovery of a Zionist organisation operating in the city. The apparent power and sense of pride these people have is appealing to Gold, and he attempts to become a part of the group. As the film reaches its climax, Gold is thrust into a series of circumstances that test not only his loyalty to his badge, but also his newfound Jewish consciousness. So that's that's a pretty good praise of it, and it's very good. Oddly enough, um, having Joe Mantegna play a Jewish guy works for the film, even though he isn't Jewish, he's um, of Italian ancestry. Uh, let me just double-check all of that. Sic- Italian-Sicilian descent he is. But that kind of works for the film in the sense that um, Gold is a man who isn't part of his culture. He's ethnically Jewish, but his culture is mostly his police work. The job defines who he is. Um, and he's, he's a man with insecurities because he's got things to prove. He's always the first guy through the door when they're breaking into somewhere um, during a raid. He's also a hostage negotiator, so he's the guy at the pointy end of things. He's the man who has to use his wits and his knowledge and his eloquence to hostage negotiate. So basically he's 
trying to prove things all of the time. And Mantegna is very good at um, in the role. Of course, Mantegna and William H. Macy had worked with Mamet in the Chicago Theatre for a lot of years before this movie was made. So they knew the rhythms of Mamet's work. They knew the kind of characters he plays. And a lot of Mamet's movies are about men and who they are. And uh, so they were, you know, Macy and um, Mantegna really play off each other well because they'd worked together for so very long and there's a really I'm going to play the clip for you now I'm not even going to wait and play it a little bit later because this clip is really good it's about the two different investigations going on trying to find the Ving Rhames character and arrest him and also trying to find out who murders who murdered the old Jewish lady now you've got to listen very carefully to this one because it's about the relationship between the two men and even though they don't actually say it, they've got a great regard and a great um, friendship there and they've worked together for years, they know each other quite well and the dialogue just snaps and sparkles all the way through this clip. Wait a second, I rebel every time somebody says to me, Excuse this me. is the thing of the future, something works like this. I just saw the ATF. They were stolen, Sully. The Tommy guns were stolen. All the guns on this invoice. Hey, you're better than an aquarium. You know that? There's something happening with you every minute. What does it mean? It don't mean nothing. Some broad got killed. She's dead now, okay? You're going to the ticket office, pick up Randolph's tickets. This is the big one, laddie. Timmy, this other case. Bob, I got this piece of paper I found. Grofaz. Grofaz. What does it mean? I don't know what it means. I got this fellow on the roof, the Jewish house. I... What was he doing, shooting at him? I don't know. Well, then drop it, Bobby. For Christ's sake, I, I don't get it. Well, maybe you don't want to get it. What do you mean? Nothing. What do you mean, because I ain't a yid? Well, you ain't a yid. And so what? I'm, I'm an anti-Semite? What the fuck are you saying? It's just not your thing, Tim. It's not your thing. It's my thing, okay? Bob, I'm going to tell you what the old whore said, and this is the truest thing I know. When you start coming with the customers, it's time to quit. What's this? It's a strap the guy tore off my holster. Well, go get it fixed, will you? Go take a cooling walk, something. You mad at me? Yeah, I'm mad at you. I'm not going to invite you to my birthday party. You dumb kike. Go get your holster fixed. That's a beautiful bit of dialogue. I love it. And, and the way it speaks to the characters and the way the characters speak to each other, it's just a, a lovely piece of writing executed better than anybody else in the world could do those particular lines with those particular characters in that particular movie. It's just um, wonderful stuff. And um, the interesting thing is that as gold gets in murky, there's a couple of red herrings that actually lead him to the Zionist group. The... Um, the Jewish community that of which the old lady was a part, her son's a very uh, wealthy doctor. His daughter, played by Rebecca Pigeon, who is David Mamet's wife, confronts Gold. She's the person who walks up to her and says, my family's in pain, you have to help. And she's determined and um, very forthright about this. Until there's a scene later on when <coughs> there's somebody's on the roof across the way from the um, doctor's house and they hear what may be a gunshot it could have been a car backfiring but it could have been a gunshot as well and um, gold takes a phone call from his office in a study in the house and goes into an enormous anti-semitic rant um, a kind of cruel and nasty and self-loathing rant 
about the family, about the fact that he's stuck on this case rather than on the drug case, which is going to get him much more prominence and help his career. He goes into this long and um, self-loathing rant, not realising that Rebecca Pigeon's character is sitting in the corner of the room until after he hangs up the phone. And that's um, beautifully directed, apart from anything else, because we don't see, we see her about five seconds before Gold sees her. And that kind of works really well. It gives us time to go, oh, fuck, before Gold and her, uh, Gold realises she's there and they have further dialogue. So it lets the audience catch up a little bit with what's actually going on in the room. And there's some other good scenes as well. There's one in a Jewish library where um, Gold is tracking down what Grofas means uh, and he finds out that it's actually a slang term for Hitler that was used late in the war. And so that leads him into um, contact with this Zionist group who are operating in the city. The old lady uh, at the time of the formation of the Jewish state was smuggling Thompson machine guns out of America to assist the um, the people who were starting the state of Israel. And he finds, by accident, behind another picture on the wall, a picture of the old lady as a young woman in Israel with a Thompson machine gun. And he takes the picture, and it becomes a kind of talisman for him for finding out who he is. Plus, he has a couple of encounters at the Jewish library, where um, a Jewish scholar talks to him about the fact that his badge, um, his police badge, has a five-pointed star. And what that means compared to what the six-pointed Mogan David star, the Jewish star, means. And he kind of comes up against these limitations in a couple of places too. When some people are speaking Hebrew and Yiddish, he doesn't understand either language. And when the Jewish scholar shows him the Book of Esther and an annotation he's made as a part of his um, studies of the Talmud, he can't read the Hebrew in that either. So he kind of, because he comes in conflict between his nature. He's a hostage negotiator. He knows how to use words to influence people, how to calm people, how to turn them around to his side of things, how to use logic and patience and psychology to influence people. But in those two scenes, he finds that he doesn't have the language skills he needs to understand what somebody is saying to him or what some what is being said in the same room he's in. And so he comes adrift and his identity, his sense of self is challenged by these things. And we actually do see a scene where Gold is using his hostage negotiation skills. He talks to the mother of Reynolds, the Ving Rhames character, to try to get her to help them um, trap her son. And his argument basically being is, if we do it my way and if we trap him, we'll keep him alive. But if she doesn't cooperate, the cops are going to go out there all guns blazing and kill him. And he is gentle and patient and manipulative as all fuck. But we see that he is very good at what he does. And because he's very good at what he does, the old lady wants him to be there when she gives a fake passport to her son as a part of the setup for capturing him. He thinks he's going to get a passport and get out of the country, whereas it's all really just a police thing. But while Gold is tracking down the clues on the other case he's working, 
he loses track of time. There are some things that go down. There's some information he's given. He meets a, an attractive um, Israeli woman who's working with the Zionist group in the city. And she takes him to um, a shop, a print shop, which may be printing anti-Semitic material. And she asks him to do some things for him, for them that really challenge his sense of identity and, and challenge his nature as a cop. Basically, they're asking him to do certain illegal acts. And he's kind of... Because he's adrift and, and doesn't know quite who he is, he's been insulted by one of his superiors, a black man who called him a kike. In the office, he um, doesn't... He's, he's kind of adrift and he's searching for something he doesn't know what, which is always a dangerous place for any human being to be. When you're searching for something and you don't know what it is, sometimes you find it. Sometimes things go well. Sometimes it's all wonderful. But other times it leads you down a dark path. And that's exactly what happens to gold. Um, getting involved with the Zionist group doesn't turn out to be the cure to his malaise that he thinks it's going to be. It turns out to be something very different. It turns out to be something much darker and something that he um, makes his situation worse. Without giving too much away on it, he finds out that they're using him as much as he uses the people he, do he talks to when he's hostage negotiating and when he's talking to Reynolds' mother. He finds out that he's being used by people whose ruthlessness and determination is much greater than his own. So as much as anything, this movie's about a sense of self and about who a man is and, and what he believes and um, how he defines himself. At the start of it, he's comfortable. He's with uh, cops and they talk cop talk and he has a sense of his own identity. But then when his superior calls him a kike, he um, he starts to question that. And then there's a first, the first crack in the facade is there. And the way he defines himself shifts. And one of the problems with the way he defines himself is if he can't define himself, define himself as a cop anymore, where does he go? Because that's the culture he's lived in. He doesn't seem to have much life outside the job. He's very good at it, uh, but he really doesn't have any family. His only friend is Tim Sullivan, his partner. And the rest of the people he works with are more like acquaintances than anything else. And so th this is a kind of search for identity thing as well. Uh, he doesn't necessarily get the answers he wants. In fact, he doesn't necessarily get any answers. And the resolutions to the two cases he's got, capturing Reynolds and finding out who killed the old lady, are events that are resolved in spite of him rather than because of his actions. And he's left kind of marginalised and still with those questions about who he is and how he defines himself and no real place to go for answers. Um, it's a profoundly great film. It doesn't take you where you think it's going to take you. Uh, I came in on this one cold. I didn't read up about it beforehand deliberately because I wanted the reveal um, because remembering movies like The Spanish Prisoner, the Mammoth film, which is basically about um, con artists, and knowing that Mamet does that kind of thing where he obscures and only reveals as much as you need to know to carry you through the film. 
Uh, I wanted I wanted that surprise. I wanted not to know that um, certain things were going to happen in certain ways, or even the direction the movie was taking. And the ride was great. I really enjoyed it. This was Mammoth's third directed film, and it's very good. Uh, the camera moves around confined spaces very well. There's a lot of going through doorways, which is, of course, an important symbolic thing because Gold is going through doorways. He's um, moving forward, trying to find answers and trying to find out who he is and, and how he defines his life. And the metaphor of going through doorways is quite important. There are doorways that are kicked down. There are doorways that are opened. There are doorways that are blown off. But uh, there are always more doorways in the life of Detective Gold. And uh, this is is just a a great film with character actors at the peak of their careers. And uh, I was actually reading little bits from Mamet's book, Bambi vs. Godzilla, on the nature, purpose and practice of the movie business. And there's a chapter about the cop movies. And one of the points that Mamet makes in that chapter is that in cop movies, most of the time the protagonists are uh, uh, autistic almost. They don't have families, they don't have friends, they don't have a sense of who they are, which again is, is something that Gold has. But they don't actually learn from this. Uh, he talks about movies like Serpico, where at the end the protagonist quits the police force because he hasn't realised that... Um, the nature of power and the nature of um, authority, and he's innocently gone in thinking that yeah, the rule of law is going to be enforced by the people who are supposed to enforce it, and then getting disappointed and walking away when it isn't. And also, one of the things that Mamet says is that we've got a kind of cultural autism when it comes to cop movies. The less emotional and the less connected to the world and the less and the more vigilante-like the cops are, Dirty Harrier and people like that. And he also mentions the James Bond film as a police procedural, which is an interesting view of it. Um, he, you know, basically, the more we like them, the more the characters um, are people re- we relate to. I mean, Jack Reacher being the most recent version of it, with Tom Cruise, he's a, a kind of emotionally stunted character wandering around America, just stumbling onto um, opportunities to use his high-level skills. And this movie doesn't take that approach. This movie takes the approach of, yep, there's the, there are murder mysteries in, in this movie, and there's also um, Search for a Wanted Man, a, a very important drug dealer. And yet, that's not the gut of the movie. The gut of the movie is how a man defines himself and how he moves forward when his flaws as a person and when his flaws perceived flaws as a person of a certain ethnicity are confronted what does he do how does he react who is he and who is he is the heart of this movie but anyway that's about it this time around um i I enjoyed both of these films for totally different reasons one was fluff one was very much not fluff but anyway the next episode is the 200th episode of paleo cinema podcast I do have some ideas of what I'm going to do. I'm go- I'm determined I'm going to get a guest in to um, do the 200th episode. Uh, I've got a couple of possibilities at the moment. It just depends on when the movies are watched. And there will be stuff happening. But if you've got any things I can add to it, or if you want to pass on congratulations, send me an um, MP3, and I'm more than happy to um, play it on the podcast. So anyway, in the meantime, take care of yourselves. 
Watch good movies, watch bad movies, watch all movies. Um, watch them with friends, watch them by yourself, watch them in 3D, watch them in 2D, watch them in Academy Ratio or Ultra Panavision. But just watch the movies. And I'll be back in two weeks with the 200th episode of Paleo Cinema Podcast and in one week with the 99th episode of Martian Driving Podcast. I'll catch you guys then. And of course, there is the credits at the end of the film. And taking a leaf from Marvel, I'm going to be playing music after the credits. So you've got to get through the credits and then I'm going to play some more music. I'll catch you later. Oh yeah, and um, support the podcast via Patreon. And thank you to the two carries who haven't reached the credits yet. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers. And here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller. Sarah, our special effects technician. Ian, our caterer. Grant, our technicolor consultant. Claire, our script doctor. Gary, our prop master. Morris, our music director. Jan, our dialect coach. Armin, our key grip. Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler. Elaine, our scientific advisor. Julia, our casting director. Chris, our camera operator. Christopher, our gaffer. Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress. Tansy, the foley artist. Alyssa, the location scout. Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, our donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve, our script doctor. Dylan, our go wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Kerry, our second script doctor. Richard, our set photographer. And our extras, Kathleen, Mark and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects. And Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers. And you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema. Penso che un sogno così non ritorni mai più. Mi dipingevo le mani e la faccia di blu. Poi d'improvviso venivo dal vento rapito e incominciavo a volare nel cielo infinito. di blu felice di stare lassù e volavo volavo felice più in alto del sole ed ancora più su mentre il mondo pian piano spariva lontano laggiù una musica dolce suonava soltanto per me di blu felice di stare lassù ma tutti i sogni nell'alba svaniscono perché 
quando tramonta la luna li porta con sé ma io continuo a sognare negli occhi tuoi belli che sono blu come un cielo tra punto di stelle tuoi blu felice di stare qua giù e continuo a volare felice più in alto del sole ed ancora più su mentre il mondo pian piano scompare negli occhi tuoi blu la tua voce è una musica dolce che suona per me di stare qua giù nel blu degli occhi tuoi blu felice di stare qua giù con te.